How are you doing? Okay? Survived the first day? Sometimes the first day can be really intense because we just get here and exhausted and mind racing around like crazy and, um, you know, I don't need to tell you, you're experiencing it. So I wanted to talk tonight about what we're doing here, about what mindfulness is and look at it from a couple of different perspectives and what gets in the way of mindfulness and what the promise of mindfulness is as we practice with it. And I thought I'd start by talking a little bit about the current research around mindfulness. And I have been spending the last number of years working at UCLA where uh, we, I'm part of a center that does research and education around mindfulness. And um, so I've been very involved in thinking about and helping being involved in general in the, in the research. And it's really interesting because, you know, I started meditating about 20 years ago and, um, you know, nobody was talking about mindfulness in the way that they're talking about it now, right? And so it's been very exciting for me to see over 20 years just the changes and the way that it's become so much more part of the mainstream and that people are developing whole careers around researching mindfulness and teaching mindfulness. And um, it's, just, it's just amazing to watch that happen. Now, it's still a really small field. Some people say, oh, there's all this research going on around mindfulness. But the truth is, it's, it's pretty young. It's a young field. So maybe 10 years ago, there were about 70 studies that, on mindfulness and science, some kind of scientific research on it. Now there's probably about 700. So it's a huge exponential leap. However, if you were to... Um, if you were to, I don't know, find out how many studies are out there about heart disease and nutrition, for instance, you would find 40,000 studies, right? So it's very, it's, it's a small field. It's a very promising and exciting field. Um, there's a couple of major areas that they've been doing the research. One is in how does doing these meditation practice impact our bodies? And some of what it's showing is that it helps in, different, in various ways. It helps with any condition related to stress reduction, so, so related to stress. So it helps when it, with the stress reduction. So for instance, high blood pressure or um, something that, that they've seen is that mindfulness helps with the immune response, boosting the immune response, and also with... Um, with it helps with the healing process in the body. So they did an interesting study a number of years ago where they looked at people who had psoriasis, which is that itchy skin condition. And the treatment for psoriasis is that you go into these kind of photo light, sort of like tanning booths, and they, um, they send this light at the skin. And there were some people who were just doing the normal treatment, and then other people who were doing... Uh, who were also listening to a CD doing meditation just like you are today. And they found that the people who listened to the CD healed four times faster than the people who were just doing the regular treatment. So it's pretty interesting to see that it actually can impact the healing response. They did a study just a few years ago at UCLA, last year maybe, with people who were HIV positive 
and they were checking for their T-cell count before and after the study. And the T-cell count is what you want to stay stable or um, get increased. And what they found was that um, the people they went through people went through a program of like eight weeks of learning meditation, practicing every day, and they were working actually with um, some fairly indigent populations and people who they had a hard time practicing, and they found that the people who practiced, uh, sorry, not the people who practiced, the people who got the mindfulness training program, their T cell count st- was stayed stable, whereas those who didn't, it went down. But what was really interesting is they weren't practicing that much. They really weren't. They didn't have a lot of them. Some of them were homeless. They didn't have um, a lot of stability in their lives. But still, coming each week, learning the principles, beginning to apply it, seemed to make a difference. And that's really, really exciting. Again, all of these studies need to be replicated and more needs to be done about it. The second area is in the area of uh, working with emotions. Mindfulness has been applied for anxiety and depression and obsessive compulsive disorder, a whole range of of, uh, mental health issues. But one doesn't necessarily need to have a particular diagnosis. You can also just have general anxiety from being human and evidently it seems that that helps too. And um, one of my favorite studies that they did a few years ago was they had some faces flashed across a screen. And the faces were faces where people were feeling were disgusted or frightened or angry. And underneath the faces were two labels. One was either the name of the emotion, like um, disgust or fear. And the other label was a gender appropriate name. So either Fred or Mary or something, depending on whether it was a man or a woman. So that so the participants had to choose which one was, which one they were, um, whether it was a they either had to choose the kind of emotion or the name of the person, and their brains were being scanned, and what they found out was when there was that when you saw a scary image or a disgusted image or something like that, your amygdala, which is the it's like the primitive part of the brain, the brain that gets aroused, that gets easily gets frightened or um, it lit up, okay, which is typical. It's just a normal response. But when they said, oh, I'm, they're experiencing disgust or fear or worry or sadness, the frontal part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, kicked in and calmed down the part of the brain that was aroused. So what that means for us and what we're doing here is that when we are mindful, when we just label that we're in an emotion, I'm fearful, I'm tired, I'm bored, I'm angry, there's something inherent in just the act of noticing it that allows our our nervous system to calm down. And this is really exciting because you wouldn't think that that would happen or or it's, it's a little surprising, but actually just in the knowing of the experience has an impact on our body and brain states. So that's another area. We've done research around attention and um, looked at people, I was involved with a study a few years ago with people who were doing uh, ADHD, who had ADHD, attention deficit disorder. We did teenagers and adults. 
and found out that if they practiced, um, and they went through, again, another program, none of them doing these intensive retreats, although that's also been studied. Um, But when they went through that program, the people who in the beginning had a very difficult time paying attention, especially when there were competing things for their attention, they were able to to stay more focused. And people reported general, just feeling better about themselves, feeling happier, more at ease. The last area is the area that they've been doing, doing a lot more brain research. And they take people who are the, people who've been meditating, like monks. Monks have been in caves for 20 or 30 years. And they hook up them up and check out, they measure their brain. And they find, they've found, these are sort of the athletes, you know, the Olympic athletes of meditation, right? The guys who've been at it for, women who've been at it for 20, 30 years. And they found that those people have a thicker prefrontal cortex, which I'll talk about in a sec, um, than people of the same age group. So it prevents your brain from getting, um, from, from uh, losing gray matter, which if you're older, that is probably very exciting news. If you're younger, you probably don't, aren't thinking about it. But, um, but the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain responsible for executive functioning, which includes flexible thinking, the regulation of brain and body states, and, um, and also working memory. So a lot of things that you want to be developed, right? You want to, you want to have these things. Mindfulness and meditation seems to promote that. So mindfulness meditation. So I just wanted to give you a little bit of an overview to have a sense of what the work that's being done, because you're probably sitting here meditating and you're thinking, some of you are actually just talking to the group. Some of you are having a lovely day. It's very peaceful. You're having a good time. Others are up and down and back and forth. And oh, it's been painful, body pain, and I'm falling asleep, and I'm tired, and I'm um, annoyed at that person near me. And I, you know, we've ha- we're having the gamut. We're running the gamut of experience. So there can be a sense of why am I doing this? What's happening? And the and one of the answers is meditation sort of works. You know, meditation. I always wanted to have a bumper sticker. Meditation, it works. It does. It makes a difference. And now the scientists, I just gave you that lowdown, the scientists are saying here's why it works and how it works. But you are getting this opportunity to be a scientist of your own body and mind being here. And you get to explore what's going on and what's happening inside your, inside your mind, inside your heart, inside your body. And maybe they're not all separate. Maybe they're one. But you're getting a chance to explore that and find out for yourself if meditation really works. So mindfulness is the particular practice that we've all been trained in and... Um, you know, it's another translation of vipassana. Sometimes people call it vipassana, which as Mark said, is seeing clearly or looking clearly. Uh, mindfulness is now kind of the popular term that people are using. I'll probably use it because I teach it a lot in that way. Um, so mindfulness is this present time awareness that's open and curious. There's an element of non-distractibility. So the ability to stay present to experience as it comes and goes. 
And sometimes mindfulness is translated simply as remembering, just remembering. So you probably noticed that being mindful isn't too hard. It's remembering to be mindful. That's hard, right? And it's sustaining it over a period of time. So mindfulness, as we've been pointing to, wakes us up from this automaticity that we get into. We get really, you know, we just go through life missing our life. Like we're on automatic pilot. You know, you get in the car, you get out of the car, and you have no idea what happened in between. That happens all the time, right? Um, We miss our lives. And so mindfulness invites us to come into our bodies, into our hearts, to connect with ourselves and see what's here, what's present, what's true. And life can begin to take on more vibrancy, more aliveness, because we're really present for it. And we've talked about the way that the mind tends to go into the past and into the future. And oftentimes, the anxiety, the depression, the grief, all of that lives in the stories of the past and the future. And if we can bring our mind back to the present moment, then we're in a place that's not caught up in that whole storyline. Because in the present moment, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, the present moment is okay. A lot of the time, the present moment is fairly neutral. If you just check into your body at any moment, there might be a little pain, especially if you've been sitting all day, but the present moment is, is okay. It's the stories that send us into the problems. And not that we're not going to do that, because our minds do this. Our minds think, our minds plan, our minds remember, our minds uh, agonize over things. We do that. So it's not, the problem isn't, isn't about doing it, although it, let's see, it causes a kind of problem when we do it. But the fact that we do it isn't the problem. What we, what we can do is learn to bring our attention back again and again. We may not be able to stop those thoughts from coming. Uh-oh, what if there's not enough lunch left when I get to the, to the line? You know, that, that thought just will come. It will come. What, what can you say? We're human, right? But then we can say, oh, thinking, worrying. And then bring our attention back to right here, right now, where things are more or less okay. The Buddha said, this is the only way, oh, yogis, practitioners, for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the destruction of suffering and grief, for reaching the right path, for the attainment of awakening, namely practicing mindfulness. The destruction of suffering and grief. Sounds good, huh? So if we practice this, and I don't like the language of it's the only way, because of course there are many, many different ways, and many of you have practiced other ways that do lead to the end of suffering. Um, This is one. This is one that we've all discovered in our lives has found to be really incredibly helpful. So the mindfulness that I think you're all accessing has these elements that it's really not supernatural, it's not magical, it's not something even that far away from your experience. 
And some of you have come in reporting and say, oh, I'm already mindful. There are ways in my life that I've already accessed it. And we do through sports when you're kind of in the zone, you know, you're just, you're, um, you're running and you just get to that place where you're completely present or through art or painting or music or, you know, the creativity where there's nothing except you in that experience or when we're in nature. I mean, nearly most people have had the experience of being in nature and feeling connected and at ease and at peace. So mindfulness is accessible to us. It's always been there. As children, I think we were so mindful. And then we got, someone said in one of the groups today, then we got ruined, right? We got lost. We got, we got sort of sidetracked into the being, uh, into the doing and the accomplishing and the achieving. And suddenly, where's the mindfulness? Now, there are different types of mindfulness. Sometimes our mindfulness is very, very focused. And so we invite you to begin by coming to our breathing and just letting yourself get focus on the breath, letting your, letting your mind get a very precise, one breath after the next. So that's one kind of mindfulness. There's another kind of mindfulness that's very broad. So sometimes you've noticed that you might be out doing walking meditation and it's just your mind opens up and you're really aware and you notice the wind and the trees and the smells and the, the air and in your body. And so mindfulness has become very broad. It's not like one is better than the other. They're just different and they're appropriate at different times. So if you're feeling really, your mind is super spaced out and you go out to do walking meditation, you probably want to narrow your field so it can help you be a little bit more focused. And when I say narrow the field, I mean come into your body. Just feel one step at a time. If your mind is feeling really tight and kind of unhappy and a little too much, you can open your awareness. And in both cases, you're being mindful, just different kinds of mindfulness. So it's sort of like a camera. You know, sometimes a camera has a telephoto lens and it takes that kind of a photo. Sometimes a camera has a panoramic lens. Neither is better. It just depends on what shot you want at that time. And then there's also an aspect of our mind that has to kind of discriminate to make those decisions, to say, wow, I'm really spaced out. I need to come in a little bit closer to my breath or to my feet. And in those cases, uh, it, well, let's see. So when your mind, so your mind is either telephoto or panoramic. In most cases, it's like adjusting the camera, the part of our mind that knows that I need to fix the light meter or come in or use a different kind of shot. We have that inside ourselves. It's a kind of mindfulness, like a discrimination about what's appropriate when. And as you get skilled at it, you get better at it as you practice it over time. So we need to know when it's appropriate. So for, and it, for instance, um, my friend was teaching her 16-year-old daughter how to drive. And her daughter is very, she's a very focused kid. She does really well in school. She's really concentrated. So when she was driving, she started using that real concentration, but she didn't seem to have that broad mindfulness. Right? So she'd be driving along, and she'd see a mailbox, and, her, and she would look at it and veer over and practically hit the mailbox. 
because she was so focused. It was like the wrong kind of mindfulness. You see what I mean? She needed a more panoramic, open mindfulness. So it depends on when and how you use it. What happens as we attempt to be mindful is there's this, what we call a a proliferation of thinking that seems to get in our way. So in other words, you have one little thought and it leads to another little thought and then a bigger thought, bigger thought, bigger thought, and your mind just goes and goes and goes. And we call this in the Pali language, which is the language that the original Buddhist texts were written in, we call this papancha. And papancha just means proliferation. You start with one thing and it just, just your mind just goes, you think about, oh, I wonder what's for lunch. Hmm. Well, let's see. The dinner was this, and so that might make the lunch. And you know, when I went to that restaurant last week, that was great. And I had that incredible ice cream sundae. God, I want ice cream. You know, and your mind just keeps keeps going, right? This is papancha. Or an example, uh, if this was this was a while ago. I woke up in the middle of the night with this terrible toothache. And one thing I've learned is never believe anything you think in the middle of the night. You know what I mean? Your mind can tell you anything. It's pretty, pretty wild. Um, but I woke up with this toothache and I thought, oh no, what's wrong? It really hurts. This is terrible. Maybe there's something seriously wrong. What am I going to do? Oh no, what if I need tooth implants? In the course of about 30 seconds, I went from a little ache in my tooth to I'm going to need tooth implants. This is papancha. This is this proliferation of thinking that we're doing all the time. And by the way, I went to the dentist. There was nothing wrong at all, which is usually the case, right? When you worry, worry, worry like that, there's nothing going on. Or sometimes, but it's rarely as serious as we think. So the problem is that we have these thoughts. And as I said earlier, the thoughts themselves are not the problem. We're going to have thoughts. The problem is that we believe the thoughts. We take them to be real. And that leads to a lot of suffering. So we're sitting here meditating and we think, the person near me has the best posture. They must be really a great meditator and I'm a terrible meditator and I I mean I can't even sit still for one second and look at them they haven't moved and they knew exactly the right clothes to bring and look what did I bring and you know and your mind just goes off right and you believe it and then what happens you suffer we suffer because we believe our thoughts there's a bumper sticker it's such a great bumper sticker and Um, And it says, don't believe everything you think. Have you seen it? When I lived in Berkeley, I saw it all the time. I've seen it once (laughs) in two years since I moved to Los Angeles. But um, (laughs) it tells you a lot, right? But um, so don't, so part of the practice that we're doing here is learning not to believe everything we think. An example of how to work with the papancha, to work with these proliferation of thoughts is if you're at a train station and 
the thoughts are, let's imagine that our thoughts are like the trains and the thoughts just go, right? So they, the papancha happens, they just go, the trains just leave the station, zoom. And you get on the train and you're just lost in the thought, believing the thought, thinking, thinking, and then it's 20 miles later and you're down the road and you're lost in your thought. So that's one option. The other option is that you are at the train station, the train leaves the station, and you stay on the platform. You don't have to get on the train. You don't have to get caught in your thoughts and believing it in that way. So this is, this is one way when you see these thought trains going by, you can just sort of relax. Oh, there's that thought, there's the worry, there's the fear, there's the grief, there's the anger, whatever it is. Not my anger, not my grief, not my fear. It's just the fear and grief passing by. So with mindfulness, we're learning not to get on the thought trains, not to get lost in these stories, to come back again and again, not to stop our minds from thinking. We're not trying to stop our minds from thinking. This is, I think we've mentioned this, a very, very common misconception. Our minds will think. Can we instead redirect ourselves back to the present moment, often to our bodies, to our breath, or to whatever is happening in this moment? We experience the moment as it is, without getting lost in a whole lot of conceptualization about the experience. And so what that means is, when we listen to the sound of the bell, can we just listen to it? So when I listened to it, I just, I just stayed with the sound. I just listened. Now, what would be the opposite of that, that we're trying to learn not to do so much, is to sit there and think about it. To go, oh, that's a really nice bell. I wonder if they sell bells like this down at the Spirit Rock gift shop. Oh, maybe it's a little big for my house, but they might have a smaller one. You know, blah, blah, blah. Papancha, your mind going off. This is, this is conceptualization. Or hmm, that's the sound of a bell. It's very ringing. It's, I wonder what key it's in. I wonder, you know, this is, again, it's all conceptual. What we're doing instead is called bare attention. Bare attention is just being with the thing before that whole level of storyline comes up about it. Whether it's stories that lead to more stories that lead to more stories, or whether it's just thinking about that thing. And this was taught very clearly in one of the most famous teachings of the Buddha, called the Bahia Sutta. Sutta just means discourse or teaching. And um, this was a, 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 a man who had been practicing with many different teachers and teachings, and he thought he had gotten enlightened. And then he was talking to someone who told him that he didn't really think so. Sorry. Um, but if you want to meet someone who's really enlightened, you got to meet this Buddha guy. So he went over to meet 
the Buddha, and the Buddha was busy doing alms round when they go out asking for food. And he said, can you please give me a teaching? I'm dying to get enlightened. And the Buddha said, no, it's not really a good time. But Bahia asked him three times, and in the Buddhist lore, if the Buddha is asked three times, he has to do it. Okay, so if you meet a Buddha and you want something, ask three times, okay? <laughs> and the third time the Buddha said, okay, here's here, and, but I don't have a lot of time because I'm in the middle of my alms round. I'm going to sum up my teachings in just a tiny, tiny little phrase or set of phrases. He said, Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In the seen will be merely what is seen. In the heard will be merely what is heard. In the sensed, merely what is sensed. In the known, merely what is known. In that way, you should train yourself, Bahia. In the seen, merely the seen. So when we see, we simply see. When you're out there doing walking meditation and you see this beautiful bird fly by, that's great. Be mindful of it. Don't sit there and go, hmm, I wonder what kind of bird it is. There's a really nice bird that I saw before. I wonder if it's the same one, blah, blah, blah. It's okay. Your mind will do that to a little degree. Sometimes it'll go, oh, there's a bird. That's fine. But you don't want to feed that. You don't want to feed that and let it go. You just want to be aware with this bare attention in the seeing. Seeing is the scene. So Bahia, here's this teaching. And um, this is what they say. Now, through this brief Dharma teaching of the, of the Buddha, the mind of, the, of Bahia was immediately freed from the taints without grasping, and the, and the Buddha went away. So, so in other words, he heard that one little bit, got enlightened, that was it. Any, did it work for any of you? <laughs> Let me know. What we do here is work with this bare attention moment after moment through this application of being aware as much as possible. It's a little bit like mindfulness boot camp. You're here, right? You got to work at it a little bit. But at the same time, as Mark was pointing to, there's an aspect of relaxing because we are already aware. It's not that far away. Remember, it's the remembering to be mindful that's the hard part. So if we get too tight, it can get, it can get kind of unpleasant. I'm working so hard to be aware. Just, just relax a little bit. But then if you relax too much, you're sort of lost in space. So finding that place somewhere in the center. What we teach here, we invite you to start with your breathing because your breath is a neutral anchor. Your breath is always present for most of us. I mean, for all of us, our breath is present, sorry. And, um, but it's not always a good neutral anchor for everyone, was what I meant. Um, you can use other anchors. If, you don't, if the breath isn't working for you, you can use sound as your anchor. Some people use body sensations. What happens when you choose an anchor is it allows yourself to calm and stabilize and relax and be present. But then later on, as you practice, you begin to open to all of experience. 
so that nothing is excluded. So we started out with breath, but then we've done some sound meditation. We've done uh, body sensations. We taught you a little bit about working with pain. Now I'm talking about thoughts. Tomorrow we'll be doing some around working with our emotions. And suddenly the whole range of phenomena of our experience is included in mindfulness. It's just nothing gets left out. And that's one of the things I love about this practice. Nothing is excluded. Not any aspect of you or me is excluded. Because oftentimes we want to push away. There's a part of ourselves we just don't want to be mindful about. I don't like the fact that I'm judgmental. Or I don't like the fact that I you know, think about such and such a thing. But in the, from the perspective of mindfulness, everything we're experiencing is fine. It's the truth of the present moment. Nothing can be excluded. So when we say to you, if you're sleepy, be aware of your sleepiness. If you're scared, be aware of the fear. If you're hungry, be aware of the hunger. When I say that, I'm not inviting you to think about the hunger. You know, we could, maybe you're hungry, it's the morning, it's not quite lunchtime, and you say, oh right, Diana said everything is included, let me be mindful of my hunger. And then you start thinking, now if only I had eaten more breakfast, then I wouldn't be hungry. That's not being mindful of your hunger. That's thinking about your hunger and manipulating and trying to control the situation a little bit. Being mindful of the hunger means what is the experience of hunger in this moment? And you might check into your body. And there's a feeling maybe your stomach has a little pit in it. Or there's a wanting kind of clutching at your chest or heart. that's, that's being mindful, coming into your body again and again. The body is the doorway to mindfulness. The body is always in the present moment. Your mind can be anywhere, but where was your body? Anywhere, nowhere except here, in this moment. So as we as we practice mindfulness, our capacity to be aware and of what we can be aware of grows and grows and grows. So in the beginning, our capacity is maybe not so great. That's because we're just starting out. Now, I know some of you have been doing it for a while, but there's many people who are new. So you just you have a little mindfulness. But as you practice, your mindfulness gets bigger and bigger, and it grows. And it's kind of amazing when you see that something that you just couldn't face with awareness at one point, is now perfectly okay, acceptable to be present with. I didn't want to touch that fear. It was too big. But now my mindfulness is big enough to contain it, to hold it. We're creating a mind that can be present with anything. That's the beauty of this practice. We're not trying to create a specific experience. I mean, it would be nice if we could have this beautiful retreat where only happy, pleasant things happen and you're in bliss the whole time. That'd be great. doesn't work that way. I mean, you might. Some of you might, but that's not the point. The point is to develop a mind that can be present no matter what it's experiencing. And we can take this out into our lives. We can be present 
no matter what we experience in our lives. This is the, the beauty of this practice, cultivating this capacity, this mindful stance for life, for living. Now we do this, and we work really hard, and we try to be present, and it's been a long day. And you know what? It's hard. Mindfulness, practicing this in this way, is hard. And why is it hard? It's hard because it's difficult, because you've been trained to do the opposite. So for, I don't know how old you all are, but 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, you have been taught to be distracted, to multitask, to do other things um, at the same time, to do many things at the same time. Mindfulness invites us to do something we're not used to doing. But it's actually good that it's hard, I think. Because if it were easy, it might not... The mindfulness, if you think of mindfulness as a muscle, it might not develop so well if it were, so, if it were too easy. It's a little bit like if you were going to the gym and... Um, let's see. Let's get around here. Anyway, the glasses case. If I were going to the gym to trying to work out my bicep... Taking this glasses case, it's not going to do that much, right? It would take me a really long time, a really long time to develop a bicep. And it's the same way when we're practicing. If, if it was just easy, our mind would kind of be, okay, sort of there, sort of not there. But because there's a resistance, and the resistance is that wandering mind, that mind that's going all over the place, that's like, that's like a big heavy weight, and we lift it again and again and again, and our mind gets stronger. Our mindfulness muscle gets stronger. And if you're the kind of person who has a really wild mind, maybe you identify as having ADHD or you're, you, know, you just happen to have a really busy mind, you get more opportunities to practice, right? Your muscle gets really strong because you just keep coming back again and again and again. This is a little thing I cut out of uh, a magazine, and it's for it's an ad for Ceridine, which I believe is an anti-anxiety uh, medication, and it's a picture of a woman meditating, and it says on it, "Inner peace now available in capsules." <laughs> we wish. I wish it worked that way. It's not. It takes some work. But it's also the relaxing, too. It's, it's this very interesting paradox of how do we do both. We, we work at it some, and we also trust that it's already present, that it's already part of us, and, and create the conditions for that to flourish. So as we're sitting, we come up against all sorts of obstacles, And these obstacles, I just want to name them kind of briefly so you know that if you're experiencing any of these things, you're not doing anything wrong. You're actually doing it right. You're hitting into the difficulties, the natural difficulties that we encounter. And if you do encounter these difficulties, they become something else to practice with. And I'll just, I'll I'll mention them. Many of you have talked about sleepiness. There, there are five sort of classical, what's called hindrances or difficulties that people encounter. 
And I just want to mention them also for the reason that you can know that it's not personal to you. And when you experience them, you can say, oh, I'm experiencing one of the hindrances rather than I'm a really lousy meditator, which is a classic response. So many of you experience sleepiness, really common, especially first, the first day. This is, um, part of it I think stems from a culture in which we don't get enough sleep. I think I just read that 6.5 hours is the American average for sleep. So you come here, you're exhausted, you sit down, you try to meditate, and you may not fall asleep, but you may get really woozy, drowsy, and so forth. So just take it easy. So we've talked about in the groups today, if you need to take a nap, take a nap, it's okay. If you're sitting here and you notice that your kind of mind is sinking or you're, there's some kind of hazy, foggy feeling, you can open your eyes. You can stand up and do your meditation standing up. It's not so easy to fall asleep when you're standing up. You can go out afterwards and do some walking meditation and see if that brings in some energy. And you can notice that you're sleepy. So we bring, so remember when I said everything is included, the sleepiness becomes part of the meditation. What's that like? Oh, it's, it's foggy feeling and heavy and kind of woozy and... Mindfulness of sleepiness, not a big deal. We might also experience the opposite, restlessness. So wait, raise your hand if you've been sleepy today. Look around. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm thinking, has the whole room been asleep all day? No. Um, how about restless? Who's been restless? All right. So if you haven't been sleepy, you've been restless. Maybe you've been both at the same time. Um, Restlessness, that antsy, jumpy feeling, you just want to run out of here, really common. Or your mind is wild, crazy, rushing around. Um, Also very common. If you find that you're really restless, it helps to relax a little bit. So I often find that when I'm so wild, if I can relax my posture, it can calm myself a little bit. We can also become, or do hearing meditation. Hearing meditation is very helpful when we're really, really restless. You can also be mindful of restlessness. What does restlessness feel like in your body? There's jumpy feeling, vibration, a sense of wanting to jump out of your chair. Those are sensations that you can notice in your body. Another one is doubt. We doubt what we're doing. We wonder if we're wasting our time. We wonder if any of us know what we're talking about up here. We wonder if meditation was a good thing to have done in the first place. Maybe you should have done some other retreat or some other class or stayed home or who knows. Your mind just doubts, doubts, especially it can doubt ourself. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not really good at this. It's really important to when you notice that you're doubting, to, know, to, to be aware of it, to say, oh, I'm caught in doubt, I'm caught in doubt. And you can remind yourself of your motivation. You remember the first night we explored our motivation? So you can remind yourself of that motivation and see if you can recommit and reconnect. But it's a tricky one when that happens. It's also helpful. You can talk to the teachers that can sort of help with that. Two more, I'm not going to go into so much because I think Mark is going to talk about it some tomorrow night, but 
when we're, our mind gets caught in craving or aversion. So the craving is when we really we want something or we get lost in fantasies or pleasant thoughts and pleasant experiences and our mind just goes for it. We want it so badly. And then suddenly, you know, we've spent, we spent the whole 45 minutes having this incredible fantasy and we think, God, that time went by fast. That was great. I had a great meditation. But actually, the whole time you weren't really meditating, you were thinking about all sorts of lovely things. Um, and sometimes it doesn't feel so lovely. Sometimes it kind of feels painful because you want that thing and you can't have it or you could have it, but not right now. And so, so just notice if there's a tendency for the, our mind to move into future and wanting and craving and desiring. And you can, you can notice that. You can remind yourself again of your motivation. Why am I here? And you can also uh, bring your attention into your body. There's sensations going on when, in the present moment, when you're having a lot of desire. Same with aversion. So it's the opposite, right? You're sitting there and you're miserable. And you hate that you're meditating and you're bored and you're angry and you're mad at something that happened this week at work and your mind just is, it's just, ugh, you know? Has anybody felt aversion since you've been here? Raise your hand. All right, how about craving, fantasy, desire? Yeah, how about doubt? I forgot about that one. Okay, good. You've all had all the hindrances. I'm very happy to see. I'm not happy you've had them, but I'm happy that we can all see that we've all had them. Um, so with the aversion, again, the, the metta, the loving kindness practice is a really helpful thing when you notice that you're caught in a lot of aversion. And you can also feel it in your body. What happens? What's it like? We feel it in our bodies, not to make it go away, but just to get to know it better and to allow that process of not taking it so seriously, so personally happen. We allow for a little space as we feel this in our bodies. So I'll just say a few more things, which is that one aspect of mindfulness is this quality of kindness. We sometimes say openness, curiosity, but it's really, there's a kindness, and we've been trying to encourage that, that when we invite our attention back to the breath, we don't do it as, get back to the breath, you jerk. (laughs) That's not... Uh, that's not the way to do this, to meditate. It's a kind attitude that I think you'll see as you practice it again and again actually really makes a difference in your lives. Many people report that when they started practicing some kindness in their meditation that they were noticed themselves being kinder in their daily life. So there's so, so many of us can be so nasty to ourselves. Just incredible self-doubt, self-criticism, self-hatred. And so we learn to just be kind. It's kind of like if you're training a dog, a little puppy, you're training a dog to um, be, a, what's it, a paper trained, right? To pee on the paper, you know? You don't, you don't yell at the dog, get back on the paper, you bad dog. But at the same time, you don't let them run around the house and pee everywhere. You gently and appropriately bring them back to the paper. 
the same with your mind. You're learning to do this in this kind way. We all struggle with issues of wanting to be, um, well, not everybody, I shouldn't say that, but most of us, many of us struggle with these issues. And can we learn to be kinder to ourselves? So many of us want to be perfect, and we think that if we do spiritual practice, we're really going to be perfect. So we might come here with these expectations that if I just spend the whole weekend meditating, when I get home, I'll be kind and loving, and I'll never yell at my partner, and I'll um, just always say yes to whatever needs to be done at work and, you know, whatever. It may not be exactly the way it works. I want to read this to you. Some of you have heard this before. If you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills, if you can be cheerful ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can overlook when people take things out on you, when through no fault of yours something goes wrong, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can conquer tension and relax without liquor and sleep without the aid of drugs, then you're probably a dog. (laughs) Don't take yourself too seriously. Maybe that's one thing we learn through meditation, not to take ourselves so seriously, to lighten up. Mindfulness kind of makes you happy. When you just start seeing this wild mind that does all the strangest things and thinks the most random thoughts, we start to come in contact with a kind of lightness about ourselves and our life. And I think that that's just a little bit what I'll say to end is that as we do these practices, as we do these practices over time, it begins to bear fruit. And there's so many beautiful things that happen with this meditation practice. We start to see our patterns and habits and learn to respond differently. So instead of saying, I'm such a jerk for such and such, we go, oh, there's that pattern again. There's that habit. We, that cultivation of kindness that continues over time we begin to access and to find insights into ourselves and into the world. I'll just read this. This is um, someone's insight. It's a life in hell cartoon, you know, the little rabbit guy. He says, I'm going to sit here and meditate until I have a sudden flash of insight. And he's just sitting there, and so it's like 10, 15 panels with him just sitting there meditating. And the last panel, he says, Oh my God, I should have kissed Annie Jenkins at the ninth grade prom. (laughs) So insights may come, very deep ones or not so deep. But the kind of insights that come, they're not the cognitive figuring out stuff you read in the book that you recall, read in books. They are insights that come from the deep wisdom inside us this wisdom that's already there, that's always been there, that's always been there, but it gets lost, we forget, we get covered up. Much in the same way the sun is out there, 
but the clouds come and cover it up and so you can't see the clouds. In the same way, our true nature gets covered up just by a daily life and years of habits and beliefs about ourselves and lack of trust in ourselves, and we get lost. We get alienated from who we really are. And as we do the meditation practice, we begin to clear away the clouds a little bit. And you start to have, even if it's just for one second, just this glimmer of your own nature, which is inherently wise and kind and compassionate. It's really that way inside us. And you may not believe it now, or you may have said, oh yeah, I've had that experience, I know. We learn to trust the wisdom of our bodies. Our bodies know a lot more than we give them credit for. We trust the body, we trust our hearts. We trust our compassionate hearts. It's as though we practice to stabilize and calm our mind, to create the conditions for the truth of who we are to emerge so that we can find that peace, that peace that's already there within us. The Buddha called, or what's called Buddha nature, this awakened capacity within us. It's always there, it's always accessible. It just gets lost. And so we learn the practice of uncovering again and again. So I just want to end with a quote I found yesterday at the bookstore. I was reading, um, many of you are familiar with David Foster Wallace, who died this last year, and he's a writer, a pretty amazing writer. And he had given a commencement speech at um, Kenyon College, and they turned it into a book, and I just found it at the bookstore. And I read this, and I just wrote it down because it um, sort of spoke to what we were doing here. He's talking about freedom and what is true freedom versus the freedom that kind of the media and the world and the culture tells us about. And he says, but of course there are all different kinds of freedom and the kind that's most precious you will not hear much talked about in the great outside world of winning and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and effort and being able truly to care about other people and to love and sacrifice for them over and over in myriad petty little unsexy ways every day. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness being present to who we are in each moment over and over and over again. So let's close our eyes. And just take a moment to sit here and feel your body present
And notice if it might be possible in this moment or at some other moment in your life to access that quality of your own Buddha nature that's right there, present for us here and now. See if you can catch a glimpse, a glimmer. It's right there. You don't want to miss it. listening and you now have walking meditation so enjoy see you later Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.